Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody, I hope you're having a good weekend, and thank you very much for inviting me into your home to answer some questions and uh, maybe entertain and inform along the way. Um, I wanted to put a little plug in for the podcast this week. This is the first in a little series we're going to be doing, maybe two or three episodes about education, post-cult education, um, and how to get one. <laughs> you know, where do you go? What do you do? What, uh, what you know, it's so, it is actually way overdue that I am doing this series with educator Pat Hendrickson. So she reached out to me and I went, oh my God, yeah, we gotta, we gotta do this. So this first episode is just sort of a beginning part and then we'll get in more into the details of how to go about getting into getting a GED, moving on to a higher education. But first, what about a more basic education, filling in all those blanks? You know, for people who come out of cults, come out of traumatic uh, abuse situations, um, kids who were, you know, second gen, never even got a chance at an education. We wanted to kind of give some data about how one might go about, you know, fixing that. Okay. Uh, also, um, I wanted to put a little plug in for our Critical Conversation show. Uh, every Friday night, we are back in business. Everything is all sort of reorganized here, and I am very, very kind of happy and excited about uh, putting out content on that. And so I wanted to encourage you guys to check out our show on Fridays and also call in because it is a live call-in show. So we do it every Friday, me and my wife. And, um, you know, you can call in and talk to us about anything. We have topics and subjects that we sort of take up each week, but I'm down to, to, to converse about pretty much anything. Um, okay. And then the last thing I wanted to plug, because I apparently I, I keep finding out that I don't plug this enough. Okay. And this is the other YouTube channel I have, which is the Critical Clips channel that has clips uh, from all my earlier Q&A shows, podcasts, uh, videos that I've done. I selected little excerpts out of them and I post those Monday through Friday. Uh, every day a clip goes up. And um, so if you subscribe to the Critical Clips channel, and the link is in the description section to this video, and you subscribe to this channel, then you're getting Chris Shelton seven days a week. <laughs> and I can't think of anything better for you. <laughs> so uh, there you go. There's all my plugs. I just want to make sure everybody knows about all that stuff. Uh, so let's get on with your questions now. Teresa Bailey, as you approach the end of your master's education with the goal of helping people exit and recover from destructive cults, how would you guide recovering people to learn to relax and have fun? What did you discover on the outside that was the most fun when you got away from the bubble world? Along with that, how would you advise these people to steer clear of the excesses available on the outside? Hey, Teresa, thank you very much for this question. It's a very good one. Uh, there's a lot I could say on this one, but I'll try to keep it short um, and to the point. Uh, so first off, learning to relax and have fun. Now, I've talked about this before, and I said, and I'll continue you know, along this line, that I think it's something you have to practice. I think if, you know, coming out of, God, how do I put this? You know, when you are all in, with a with with any belief set, with any kind of when you know the cult mentality is a totalist mentality. It's it's all it, it dominates your thinking. It, it it consumes your every living hour or waking hour. 
um, trying to work or help or or do activity along the lines of whatever the extremist belief set is. It's all consuming. It, it really does take over your whole life. And so everything else, to one degree or another, whether it's your partner, your job, your hobbies or, or activities, your kids, your family, all of those take a back seat to this interest or this thing that you, the subject or this thing you have to be working on or doing. In my case, it was Scientology. With other people, it's other things, whether it's religious or whether it's uh, sports related or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, political, social values, you know, when, when it's all consuming, when it is in your entire life and you don't have room for anything else, there's probably something unhealthy going on there. Um, human beings tend to be best, I think, when their attention can go from one thing to another to another kind of at will. And, uh, and you can select and choose where you want to have your attention. And you have a wide range, uh, you know, range of, of things that you are paying attention to or are looking at. It's good, in other words, to take a break <laughs> from time to time. So uh, it might seem, it might feel when you are all in on something that it's the best thing you could possibly do. This is all you'd ever want to put your attention on or put your, invest your time and effort and money and, and all that in. And it might feel like no matter what it is, I'm, I mean, really, no matter what, it, it might feel like this is the absolute bee's knees, best thing ever. And of course, why would you want to spend time doing anything else? But I think you're going to find uh, as life progresses and time moves on that that's not really the best way to go about living one's life. Uh, okay, so how do you get out of that headspace? Well, I think it takes practice. And uh, that, this is how I had to do it, is I had to, you, you know, I had, I, 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 as you guys have, have uh, noted or commented on in the past, you know, you come out of the, one of these groups like Scientology or the Sea Org, and you have this incredible work ethic. Ah, work, 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 right? Well, like I just mentioned, that might not be so healthy. That's, a, that's something you kind of get trained into or you kind of get, you know, pushed into. And you kind of have to pull yourself out of it by dedicating, disciplining yourself really to take breaks, to give yourself a, 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 a break, a, 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 someplace else to put your attention from time to time. You know, if you don't watch TV, watch some TV. If you don't go outside because you spend all your time inside, like, you know, kind of kind of flip the script on yourself. Do something very different from what you're used to doing. It will change and mess with your ability to put attention on things, your attention span. It will mess with your um, your thinking processes. It'll mess with your habits. It'll mess with your now I'm supposed to's. Because the totalist environment is full of double binds and, and now I'm supposed to's, guides and rules and regulations and what you have to do. And, um, and so you can get into a very fixed set of ideas of what is and isn't okay for you to do. And busting out of that means going and doing things that maybe you're like, oh, I don't know about this. You know, I'm not so sure that this is the right thing for me to do. No, try it. 
go for it, right? I mean, obviously, if it's not going to kill you, <laughs> you know? And when you mention uh, here, of course, to steer clear of the excesses. Okay, so this is one of those things where there's a little bit of school hard knocks thing, or where you have to kind of try it and figure yourself out. I'm talking here maybe about recreational drugs or alcohol or or partying or getting out socially and meeting and greeting and, and seeing people and making friends and and, re and forming relationships with people outside of what would normally be your echo chamber or or comfort zone or however you want to call it. You know, really stretching those those flippers out, right? Really stretching those wings out there and trying new things. It's scary. It's difficult. It is uncomfortable. It is. Um, it can be uh, exacerbating. Even it can be very, very um, straining. It can be it can be anxiety-inducing. Um, it can even be a little depression-inducing to try to flip the script on yourself and start doing new things. But I think that it's the only way. You know, there's no substitute for experience, and there's and there's no amount of reading you can do or learning you can do that will ever ever be a substitute for a real lived experience of of doing a thing right you can read all about skydiving but until you jump out of a plane <laughs> you really don't know what it's like uh you know or any number of things so there really isn't any way to get across to somebody you know who's been in this totalist bubble world um, everything you have to, you, you, you know, these, these, these folks got to go out and start living and, uh, living beyond the parameters and the double binds and the guides and rules and everything and strictures that they were living under before. It takes energetic effort. I, I you know, I, I, it's not a passive thing. If I'm, if you are somebody who's listening to me right now, who has been in one of these groups, you know, I, I, it's scary. It's not necessarily like an easy thing to do to, to go try new stuff. Um, but it's, I think you'll find in doing it and, and, and you know, and, and, and <laughs> take small steps. It's okay to, you don't have to go dive off the cliff right away. I mentioned skydiving. You don't have to go, you don't have to go jump out of a plane straight away. Uh, you know, just we'll take a, take a walk, <laughs> walk around your environment, walk around your neighborhood, uh, say hi to a few people. You know, I mean, just start start small, and then build up from there. You don't have to, you don't want to even overwhelm yourself with this because that'll just that'll just make it even harder for yourself, and you'll get even more depressed or more anxious, and you'll prove to yourself how you can't do anything. Right? You don't want to you don't want to do that to yourself. So, so give yourself little wins, little steps along the way. Oh, I, I went out. I mean, seriously, this was, a, this was, I'm, I'm talking from my own experience here. You know, I, I spent so much time in the Sea Org, sitting in a chair, sitting in a room, sitting in a basement, not looking, not going out in the world, not talking to people, not wanting to, not wanting to deal with all those, you know, those, those non-Scientologists out there. We had very derogatory terms for them, which I, I, I don't even want to use anymore. Um, so, so in overcoming that, you don't have to go to the other extreme right away, you know, just, just gradually do it. If it's uncomfortable for you, for example, to even go out and take a walk and potentially interact with people, right. I, and then give yourself 10 minutes of a walk, <laughs> it, just that. And then the next day. 
See if you can make it 15, you know? I mean, build yourself up a little bit at whatever your comfort level is, but push yourself a little bit. It's not so dissimilar to building up muscle or getting yourself in shape or getting fit. Uh, it's a discipline. It's something you have to practice. You have to work on. The muscle that you are retraining, by the way, or that you are building up newly is this one, the one in your head, your brain, right? Because it responds and acts similarly, not exactly the same, but similarly to muscle tissue, not in terms of building up, but in terms of when you practice with it, you build up action patterns and neural pathways and stuff like that up here. And, and the only way to build that up and the only way to change your earlier behavior is to, in, is to purposefully engage in new, different behavior repeatedly, <laughs> over and over and over again, until you get used to the new way of operating, the new way of acting. And you'll find in doing that, that the old ways gradually fade away, okay? saying an awful lot here. I hope not too much, and I hope I'm being a little clear, um, but these are just some some bullet point ideas of how I think, um, you know, one might approach this and maybe the right attitude to have about it. Oh, maybe the last thing I want to say is give yourself plenty of time. There is no hurry at all. You got the rest of your life. Um, give yourself that time. In fact, you know, give yourself the luxury of that time. Really pamper yourself with it a little bit because part of the totalist environment for most people in, in, in being involved in a destructive cult situation or high control group is, is the time factor is you're always being pushed. Rush, rush, rush. Now, now, now. Go, go, go. Let's go, right? It's always like everything is always at this like incredibly bizarre uh, everything has to happen right now kind of speed. And that is an artificially created reality. The real world doesn't demand that of you except in dire emergency situations. And and recovery from a destructive cult is not that. You, you want to purposefully chill <laughs> out. So yeah, get out there and do things that are different for you and, and flip your scripts. But, but, but be chill about it too, okay? Give yourself time to enjoy the experiences, to savor the perceptions and the sensations and the experience of it. Because that's, that's part of the fun of it, is, is really getting into the experience of it. Um, anyway, that's, those are some little bits of advice that I hope are useful or helpful in some way. Dad45. I would think that many people who might otherwise leave Scientology choose to stay because they fear that an absence of auditing will leave them without a mechanism that they've become so invested in psychologically. What was your experience with this detachment from auditing? Once you left the cult, did you seek out auditing sessions outside Scientology, or did you feel unsupported without auditing? Are you aware of others who either pursued auditing as ex-Scientologists or did not, but suffered a sense of despair or hopelessness relative to their detachment from auditing. All right, auditing is the core practice of the Church of Scientology. It's the key thing they use in order to engage in the mind control or awe experience that they want to deliver to the Scientologists. Auditing is powerful stuff, and it messes with your head in significant ways. There's a lot of different kinds of auditing. We're not going to get into that today. I'm just going to I'm just saying that no matter what kind of auditing you're getting, 
it induces powerful emotional experiences. Um, recalling things from your past, going over and over them, or confessing your sins and taking those earlier to times that you believed that you've done incredibly destructive things uh, in the far, far distant past, pri you know, prior to this lifetime. And things like that, you know, really create a kind of a fantasy mindset of your past and present and future in the same way that conspiracy theorists create fantasy frameworks that they, you know, structure their worldviews on. It's, it's, it's completely delusional. There is no reality to how they are framing those constructs, whether we're talking about conspiracy theorists or we're talking about Scientologists with their, with their auditing. And they do construct a framework of their past into their past lives. And uh, that is quite involved, quite detailed sometimes. Not everybody. You know, everybody has different experiences with it. But the point of auditing is to induce awe, to induce a, a, a fervent, like, oh, my God, this, this amazing euphoric experience that is kind of unlike almost anything else that you might experience. Um, I guess the only thing I have found in my life that is at all comparable to it is is recreational drugs. And because it, it, it's kind of doing some very similar things with your uh, brain chemistry. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's exactly the same as, you know, snorting a line of coke, which I've not done. Or smoking a joint, which I have done. <laughs> but it's similar, okay? The euphoria and the awe experience and the wonderment and the feeling of, you know, disassociation from your own body, from your own environment or life. Those feelings are, are quite something. They can feel quite expansive and quite amazing. That's why, it's one of the key reasons, at least, why people can pay so much money for the auditing and what they expect to get. And every auditing session is supposed to end with one of these kind of awe kind of experiences. This is epiphany and all of that, as we've talked about in the past. So you're asking when you get out of that and you move away from that, and you're not getting auditing anymore, you know, yeah, you're going to miss it. Uh, most likely that's going to be the case. Now, I, as a Sea Org member, the last 17 years I was in Scientology, didn't get a whole lot of auditing. I didn't make any grade chart progress up the bridge. I really only got a bunch of security checking on, as part of my RPF program, as I've laid out in extensive detail in earlier episodes and videos. So um, so I had kind of given up on auditing and getting up the bridge as a Sea Org member. And it was one of the reasons I left the Sea Org is so I could start getting some auditing again. Because they weren't giving me any auditing. I was, I was out and about all over the place or I was this or I was that. But I wasn't getting the auditing. So after I left the Sea Org, I, um, I hit that internet rabbit hole. And, and then I was out of the subject entirely. I didn't want any more auditing. And since I found out that Scientology is a money-making scam and that L. Ron Hubbard is a pathological, narcissistic liar, I have not had any desire to pick up the cans or be in an auditing session. And I will never, ever go into or subject myself to something like that again. Um, however, for people who come out, I understand that uh, that can be quite difficult. And I think that's one of the primary drivers behind people staying 
in the belief set and staying as independent Scientologists is because they want those drugs, man. They want that feeling. They got to they gotta feed that addiction. Um, I, you know, and I don't know. The addiction's a strong word, so I don't necessarily want to imply that every single person who's uh, in independent Scientology is an auditing addict. But I can think of very few reasons why anyone would want to continue doing Scientology other than that. Because of the feelings, the you know, the euphoria that you get from it. It's quite, like I said, it's really heady. It's, it's really an experience. But it is not one that I endorse or recommend. Um, you can get that experience other ways that are significantly safer and significantly cheaper. <laughs> okay? So, you know, so don't take this description I'm giving you as, as it being like a good thing. Any more than if I was describing the amazing feelings that you have when you're on meth, you know, it's like, no, it might make you feel amazing, but it's not good for you. Uh, so, you know, that's that. Um, yeah, and as far as am I aware of people who pursued auditing or did not suffer a sense of despair, um, or did not, but suffered a sense of despair. Yeah, absolutely. People have to get over that. I mean, it's just part of the recovery process. And usually, though, um, and this is kind of interesting and maybe a little different than those who come off of, you know, hard drugs, is, I mean, there is a biochemical <laughs> factor at play there. There's a real you know, real world substance abuse issue there, as opposed to, say, with auditing, which is more of an experiential thing, um, you, you are going to have people who are going to suffer from that, but it's tempered by learning how bad and how awful Hubbard and Scientology actually are, and usually also tempered by the, the moral rejection of Scientology that has to be part of the leaving process. You don't just get up and go one day. There has to be some kind of event or significant occurrence that, that changes the way that you're thinking about this totalist activity you're involved in. So, you, you know, you don't just wake up one day and change your mind and go, oh, I don't think I want to be a Scientologist anymore. Usually the church does something to you and you find it so morally distasteful or it's so, you know, hits up against your idea of, of, of what's right and wrong that you go, oh my God, this isn't what I thought it was. And then you can kind of look at it differently. And once you can do that, the delusions and the illusions and everything else start fading from the, from the picture and you start having a more realistic assessment of what you're looking at. But uh, it usually takes that kind, of, that kind of breaking event to happen. But once it does, my point where I wanted to go with that is the lure or the allure of auditing usually kind of goes down a bit uh, with that realization. You're like, oh, it's a con. It's a scam. It's, oh, this is something that is morally reprehensible. This is a bad thing. Well, your desire to continue doing it and engaging in the auditing process goes down quite a bit once you realize that. So at least that's been my experience and what I have, uh, I've observed with other many, many, many more people than those who still crave it, still need it, still act like addicts. And that's where you get the independent Scientologists and people who continue with it despite knowing that it was a con and a scam, right? They, they just got to have the, that euphoria and that awe feeling and that awe experience. And, uh, and they're going to have it no matter what.
And then they'll go through whatever mental gyrations they need to in order to justify it. Um, I can't say, like I said, I don't sit here in total judgment on all independent Scientologists right now that this is the only reason they're doing what they're doing. But I believe that this is central to it. And uh, that's what I can say. Barney Saunders. Hannah Eltringham Whitfield has spoken about the frequent headaches she experienced while in the Sea Org and how these eventually disappeared after she left. I think that this must be part of the body's defensive mechanisms. It makes perfect sense that if a person is under constant and intense stress, the mind will initiate pain. Defending the body from threats and harm is the original function and evolutionary purpose of pain, to force the person to extricate himself or herself from a situation of danger, which in this case is constant and extreme stress. There is a section in Steve Hassan's first book, Combating Cult Mind Control, where he argues that within the mind of a cult member, there is a struggle of two selves, between the cult self and the original self, where something of the original self that has, deep down, survived and still resides in the mind, but which struggles to make itself heard, only occasionally surfacing. I know that this is in large part an analogy to simplify and aid understanding, but I'm curious to know your opinion on how you see these episodes of pain experienced by cult members as indicative of a struggle between the cult self and the original self, for example. Did you experience unexplained, that is, with no obvious physical cause, such as injury, and chronic pain while you were in the Sea Org that you can retrospectively attribute to an ongoing inner struggle between your original and cult selves, or at least your body's physical slash psychological defenses. Okay, Barney, that was an involved question. Uh, thank you for that. And I wanted to take this up because I wanted to comment on um, some aspects of this. First off, I think I broke down last week or the week before my idea of this cult self and inner, you know, original self and how this is very much just an analogy of convenience. It's not that your brain has different sections that are divided up this way and, and you've got your old person as this little guy or this little voice in your head and then you have your new self. It's a, it's, it's a way more complicated than that, but it is a convenient way of framing um, you know, the idea that you have older values prior to the totalist environment's values, those are there. And those are baseline, you know, this is how you were raised. This is the moral principles and guidelines you were given, etc. And then there is the uh, cult self, which is the new set of rules. And now we're supposed to use and double binds and other things that you get in the whole belief set. Uh, all of that kind of lays in and that's newer material and it has to go in over the top and integrate with that old material. And sometimes they don't integrate so well. So it's an interesting mix and, and uh, of nonsense and pre-nonsense and all kinds of stuff that goes on in people's heads. And this is very complicated stuff. So we try to make it simpler by just saying, look, there's an old self and a new self. Um, as far as the pain thing, I, I can't say for sure, and I'm, I'm hesitant to confirm or, or totally agree with the idea that, that physical pain would, would be a natural uh, consequence or experience from stress. I, I stress can come out in many, many ways, and certainly physical pain could be one of them. Headaches, you know, migraine, uh, you know, headache kind of things could be stress-induced. Of course they could, or anxiety-induced. And 
Um, and it could well be that Hannah's experience was one of stress-induced headaches. And once the stress, you know, kind of got off a bit, uh, she chilled out and stopped having the headaches. Very, very, very reasonable explanation for what happened there. But there could be other explanations, too. And I'm, you know, not knowing a whole lot about uh, medicine and, and the psychiatry of or psychology of, of pain management. I'm, I'm just commenting sort of flyby on that, okay? So don't take anything I say as authoritative on that, on that matter. But I will say that I know a little bit about stress and trauma. And stress and trauma are powerful motivators and powerful uh, influencers in our body. And they are whole body experiences. It's not just something that exists in your brain. Your whole body is involved. And uh, I think there's a book called Your Body Keeps the Score uh, about this exact thing, right? And how trauma is um, can be re-experienced in lots of different ways. So uh, very much so that this could be um, part of that process. I would differentiate that, though, from the—I I don't see that really being related to the— concept of the prior self and cult self. Um, I think stress inducement or anxiety inducement can be done regardless of the personality factors involved. It has to do with uh, time stresses um, and uh, money or finance stresses and, um, you know, and power stresses uh, where you're, you're exerting power or dominance over somebody else, making them do things, making them behave certain ways, act certain ways, do certain jobs, etc. So, you know, you, you, you have that kind of influence or force over somebody, and it can induce a whole lot of stress uh, and a whole lot of uh, problems. And over time, your body is just exhausting its own resources because of this, because stress and trauma have to do something with um, the energy level of your body and where the body is directing the energy. And it's, and it's like trying to solve problems that can't be solved or are bound in these double binds that there is. It's a catch-22 situation. There is no solution, but you're supposed to find a solution and you're stuck. It's devil in the deep blue sea. It's, a, you know, you're trapped. And when you're in that kind of a place mentally and physically for extended periods of time, it's exhausting. You just you just burn through your re, your body's uh, energy budget or resources very very quickly, and what generally tends to happen in cultic groups is there's food and sleep deprivation. So the energy, the batteries in your body, so to speak, don't ever fully recharge, and you're just draining them faster and. Um, and you're actually reducing your efficiency, your ability to think, your ability to critically think for sure. And this wears down your body. It just wears it out faster is really the best way I can put it. And this is and so, of course, chronic pain, physical pain can absolutely result from this. Um, and that's just kind of how we, we know that stuff works. How it works exactly, we don't necessarily know, but that it happens and that this does occur with people, we absolutely know. So, um, so I just don't really make the connection, Barney, in your question between the cult self or the original self and this factor. I think that it's, I think that what we're talking about with, um, with these pains and stresses is we're, is we're really just kind of more talking about the, um, 
the environment, environmental stresses or environmental pressures and the effect that's going to have over on a body over an extended period of time. So I don't know. That's how I think about that, at least. And I'm and I'm having a hard time thinking about it any other way. So that's my best response to your question. Reg, given the massive secrecy around the Xenu story, and as I understand, lukewarm reception from the OT3 participants, isn't the church afraid to put this kind of space opera stuff out there for the public? I mean, even to lower level parishioners that are expected to read all of Hubbard's material. How would they interpret these gems from their new local self-help group? The closest thing we had in the JWs would have to be the revelation stories from John and the subsequent interpretation slash illustrations from JW, but even that doesn't quite compare on several levels. All right, Reg, thank you for your question. And for anybody who didn't quite grasp that, he was being very sarcastic in his question because uh, he's asking basically how is it that Scientology is putting all this you know, fantastical space opera, space civilization, Star Wars, weird stuff out there for public that's not confidential material. I, you know, History of Man, uh, the, the St. Hill Special Briefing Course lectures. There's a ton of material in Scientology that is quite wild and crazy stuff that is not confidential. Why? What's that about? Well, uh, why don't they hide all of it? Because wouldn't that freak people out? Well, let me, let, me, uh, let me tell you my idea on this, and that is that, no, why they do that or one of the reasons why that's all out there is because it's a pre-filtering process. Hubbard wants to, if you imagine Scientology as this pyramid, right, of, of, there's lots of people at the bottom, at the lower levels, and as you go up the line, fewer and fewer people are willing to shell out as much money jump through as many hoops, take as much time as is required to climb through the levels of indoctrination called the bridge to total freedom. And it can and it takes a long time. It's years. It's a it's it's a dedicated effort on the part of any Scientologist to get themselves up the bridge. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. So not everybody's going to make it who comes in is going to make it all the way to the top. One of the ways that you can sort of pre-filter who should be making it to the top are the people who are going to accept the Xenu story and accept all of the space opera stuff because it's a big part of the Scientology belief set. You have to go for it. You can't be a Scientologist for very long and not get into the whole past life thing. It just these the, the, you have to go there. So... Um, they want to filter out those people who absolutely positively will not go there. Don't want it. Don't want to have anything to do with it. Think it's crazy, right? What? Star Wars? What? Piltdown, man? What? You know, uh, all the crazy stuff from History of Man. Uh, there's, there's crazy stuff in there about uh, past lives of being a clam and being Piltdown Man and being a caveman and and being an amoeba and, and all these, you know, things that, uh, that have existed along the biologically, you know, the biological evolution of man. Well, Hubbard says that we've occupied those bodies in the past and, and he's got all kinds of crazy stuff he's written down in there. But here's the thing. They're looking for people who, who find that material fascinating, who find it interesting, who find it credible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some people, you know, are raised with this stuff or they go in and they think it's really, really interesting and incredible and fascinating and it blows their mind. 
That's the ideal Scientologist. That's the guy Hubbard wants. So much so that in the 60s, Hubbard was even writing policy that said that they should go to New Age, spiritual, sci-fi conventions and promote Dianetics and Scientology at them. Because the kind of people who go to those conventions are the kind of people who find such stories credible or interesting or awesome or whatever. So you see, it's, it's a way of actually finding their tribe, finding the people who are going to be susceptible to Hubbard's nonsense. Whereas if somebody opens up History of Man or opens up some of this, you know, weird, wild stuff and reads it early on in their Scientology experience and goes, what the hell? That's crazy. I don't, you know, they're out of there. And that guy was, you know, not fit to be a Scientologist. So that's kind of, I believe, why that material is so abundant and so available at the lower levels of Scientology. So um, just an idea, you know, but that's why I think that is there. Johnny No Stars. Among other nonsense, on some lecture, LRH described how there's actually a working and a living civilization with trains and such hidden below the hostile and impenetrable clouds of Venus. Regarding Mars, he said all the bases are hidden behind force fields, so I guess you could use that as an excuse why there doesn't seem to be anything, even though its surface is pretty much all mapped by now. But he forgot to throw this in for Venus, and clearly stated the infrastructure is there, no force fields. But probes have landed in Venus too, and if I remember correctly, 99% of its surface has been mapped from the orbit. There were no trains. How would a current Scientologist explain this to himself and to others? Thank you for this question, Johnny. And the answer to your question is there could be any number of possible explanations, as unique as each individual, as to how they're going to settle the cognitive dissonance that your question brings up. How is it Hubbard could say this, and yet space probes have gone to Venus and have come back and, yeah, no, we got the whole surface mapped and there's no civilization, there's no none of that. Well, generally speaking, and from my own experience and how I've seen others deal with this kind of thing, they're going to settle that by negating the science. They're going to say, well, yeah, but did they have, um, you know, did they map the whole of the entire planet? Really? They've got everything down to the smallest detail? They got Google Maps for Venus? Really? So they might, they, they're going to attack the premise first. They're going to go, well, I don't believe that the scientists really have it all fully mapped out. I don't believe that they really know everything you're claiming to me that they know. Because Hubbard said what he said, and what Hubbard said is generally true. In fact, it's always true. And if Hubbard said it, then it must be true. So your science guys just got it wrong. Prove to me they didn't. And now you... If you're an idiot, <laughs> proceed to start arguing with that person about how it is that science got it all wrong. Um, because they're not going to believe, right? You can always negate a positive claim. You know, well, this is this is the claim, you know, X, Y, Z. No, no, I think there's some exception somewhere. You don't even have to dream up. I mean, if you're not a very good critical thinker or you are motivated you're engaging in motivated reasoning, right? You really need to believe this is true. Then it's easy to negate positive. Nah, nah, I don't believe it. No, no way. 
And you really don't have to go a whole lot further than that. Because you're set, what you're what you're doing is you're not. Maybe this might be a way of explaining this that I haven't used before. When you're engaged in motivated reasoning, when you have to believe that something is true, you're not really using rational thought or logic or reason to to carry through the the, the logic train to get you to the conclusion that you've already come to. If the conclusion's already there, you're not engaged in the logical process of, of proving the conclusion. You're moving backwards from the conclusion, and everything that supports the conclusion is valid, and everything that doesn't is invalid automatically, because the conclusion has to be true. That's the exact opposite of critical thinking. Critical thinking, scientific thinking, or reasoning involves here's fact A, here's fact B, here's fact C. What conclusion can we draw from these facts not knowing what the conclusion is? You don't have any preconceived idea. You just have these facts, and the facts are verified. It's evidentiary. It's, okay, here it is. A is true, B is true, and C is true. We verified independently that that is the case. Therefore, D, right? But that's not what's going on in the head of Scientologists or any cult member. What's going on in their head is the conclusion is true. All the facts that support that conclusion are true because the conclusion is true. So therefore, that fact must be true. And all the quote-unquote facts that you throw my way that don't support my conclusion can't be true. And that's as far as I have to think about it. And that's as far as such people will think about it. They won't think any more than that. So that's what you're dealing with, with motivated reasoning, okay? Or how to settle cognitive dissonance so you can still hold on to your stupid beliefs. <laughs> that's the mechanically, what I just laid out is how it works, okay? And... um and it doesn't really, and I thought I might try a mechanical approach because it doesn't really matter what facts you plug into that equation. If the conclusion has to be true, the only facts that matter are the facts that support the conclusion. And unfortunately, I believe from everything I've learned and studied so far about epistemology and about how we use knowledge or how we use facts, um, I, unfortunately, I think that what I just described is pretty much how most of us actually go about thinking our thoughts and coming to, you know, navigating what we find to be credible or incredible, what we find to be true and false, is we, is we have a certain set of moral principles, social values, cultural values, educational facts and things that we've learned, and we have these conclusions. We have these ideas about how the world is. And then everything that lines up with those conclusions, right? Once we've accepted that this is how it is, we've settled into our worldview, then it's then thinking becomes very easy because if a new fact or piece of information comes in, we can go, oh, does this fit into supporting one of my pre-set conclusions? Oh, it doesn't? Well, I just reject that. I just reject that out of hand. And if it does, 
plug it in, stick it in the framework, right? There it is. Now I've got a new fact to support my preset conclusion, you see. And I think this is how a lot of people think most of the time. <laughs> so it's not just a cult mechanism. Motivated reasoning is not just something that goes on in high control groups. But we see the most extreme examples of it in these high control totalist groups. And that's that's why it makes for a great case study to talk about it as an example. But I want to stress to everybody who's watching this today, yeah, you do it too. <laughs> and so do I. Okay. And this is why I say that, that critical thinking is a discipline that you have to overcome that natural tendency to engage in motivated reasoning. Okay. So that's, that's uh, some thoughts on that. I hope that was useful. All right. Let's do some flash answers. Brentwood84, I would like to know if you think David Miscavige has a golden child, quote-unquote, in the wings that he is mentoring to be the next chairman of the board so there wouldn't be a free-for-all power struggle like when LRH died. No, I'm absolutely 100% positive that there is no such person, nor will there ever be, because David Miscavige knows better than anyone else how easy it is to engage in a coup. And if he starts investing power in somebody below him it, with the idea that that person's going to eventually replace him, then he is inviting somebody to kick him out and engage in the same coup he engaged in. And he's not down with that. To his way of thinking, that would be the stupidest thing ever. And he would not do that. Uh, also, as a point, I don't believe that David Miscavige cares at all about what happens after he is not around anymore. He doesn't give a shit about Scientology as a movement or as, a, as an organized activity which has goals and purposes set by L. Ron Hubbard. Miscavige doesn't care about any of that. So why would he care about what happens with Scientology after he's gone? He's, it's, it's a mechanism and vehicle for him to service his own needs and wants and whet his appetites. And that's what Scientology is to David Miscavige. Adria Vici Haloub. What's your favorite graphic t-shirt currently in your wardrobe? My favorite tee is this one here, which I'm throwing up on the screen right now. I th this is the cure for stupidity one. Um, I love it. And it is available on my critical merchandise site, which is linked below in the description section if you guys want to have a shirt or hat or something with that uh, graphic on it. Steve Wood. I've learned through years of looking into Scientology that once one reaches OT8, Hubbard tells people that they will acquire all the unbelievable powers. Have you met anyone who can display these powers, or has anyone ever seen anybody admit to acquiring these powers? How do the very small number of OT8s currently living come to terms with the fact that nothing they were promised is true? Steve, they believe that their promises have come true. You know, when you read about OT phenomena in the advanced magazines that Tony Ortega posts sometimes on his, on his blog, you will see success stories from Scientologists who are OTs talking about how they were able to locate their keys, change traffic lights, change the weather, get a raise, get a promotion, save their kid from getting hit by a car, or any number of other things that they believe they have spiritually used their OT abilities to create or make happen. Pure coincidences are chalked up to OT powers. 
that's how delusional Scientologists are about their quote-unquote abilities, is they will see that they are true by just making up stuff from random occurrences in life. This is not different from what people do with prayer or with lots of other incantations or magic or, you know, all kinds of other practices that people engage in in order to try to reframe or recreate reality in the way they want it to be. It's really that simple. And unfortunately, it's that stupid. <laughs> and there you go. All right, guys, thank you very much for coming around and watching me blabber on here. I hope these answers were informative, educational, and entertaining to you in some fashion or another. And uh, thanks again, like I said. If you want to support the channel, support my show, help me out with what I'm doing here, help keep these lights on and my soundboards going, then please, please, please do consider supporting me through Patreon. I really do need the support from you guys. It really helps me out. It, In fact, it's the thing that keeps a roof over my head. And um, it allows me to continue making this content for you. All right. So that all being said, check out my Patreon link below. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.